I've been uh, virtually comatose for two days here, and it's the first <laughs> time I've been able to stand up. So I, w I just I, w I didn't want to miss this. Uh, yeah. So appreciate those who have put so much time into singing and and uh, prof uh, providing for us this great opportunity to worship the Lord together. And I wanted to be with you and have opportunity to share with you what I've been thinking about, uh, mostly on my back this week, but uh, thinking about as we look to 1 Peter chapter 1, if you'll make your way there, 1 Peter chapter 1. Pastor Pratt and I recently found ourselves in a conversation with a few clergy members here in Savage. One of the pastors recounted his recent vacation to California where he visited several churches. Among them was a congregation that condoned homosexuality and it was quite obvious in the congregation that that's what they condoned. And he explained uh, his visit to that church. The clergy member here in this town who serves that same group in Savage expressed her enthusiastic approval and she went on to explain that her church believes every religion is equally valid. Apparently to prove her commitment to this position she made it clear that she was even willing to visit a Baptist church if you could believe that. And she explained that in her training as a spiritual guide, her class was encouraged to see the good in every faith. And it was one of the requirements of their training that they visit different churches in town. And everyone, she explained, headed first to the Baptist church. Well, that caught our attention. <laughs> we were really listening then. Why would that be? She went on to explain. I'm not exactly sure why she said all of this, but it was really enlightening. Listen to this carefully. This is what she said. She said, because Baptists know how to sing. Baptists know how to sing. She had no idea what she had just said. I was really stunned. If my mouth had not been on the table in front of me, I think I would have started singing right then because she had it all right there in one statement, though she didn't know it. We do know how to sing, and there's a reason for that. There's been a lot of singing here this morning, a lot of rejoicing that's been going on. Why is that? Because deep down in our redeemed souls, we believe that Jesus Christ is truly King of kings and Lord of lords. He really lives. We believe that He bore our sins on the cross. He died in our place to fully satisfy God's just wrath against us. And He rose victorious over the grave. We believe this same Jesus is now preparing a place for us in heaven and is coming back again. And because we believe this and because we believe everyone who denies these truths is wrong, we have something to really sing about. What could any congregation possibly know about singing who believes that Jesus is just as dead as any ancient Jew living in the first century? What could they know about singing if they believed that Jesus was no more unique than any number of prophets, all of whom are dead today? What could any congregation possibly know about singing who does not know the transforming grace of God that makes us new creations in Jesus Christ? <coughs> it has nothing to do with being a Baptist per se. But if you have entered into a living relationship 
with the physically resurrected Christ, you have something to sing about. So writes the Apostle Peter to his suffering friends scattered throughout Asia Minor soon after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Just look at a few verses here this morning. He says there, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a call to praise. The Greek word praise may be translated bless in some translations. Same idea of the word. We're called to use our voices to exalt God, be that in spoken word or song. Now you'll notice here that Peter does not say praise be to the gods or praise be to Allah or praise be to some generic higher power. We are to praise a specific God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise that is offered to any false god is idolatry. The only God who is God is this God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, that is in Jesus' human nature, God was his God. And there are many verses that back that up. Matthew 27, 46, John 20, 17, and others. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, of course, expressing Christ's relationship to God within the Trinity. God the Father is the one who commissions the Son to redeem His people. The Son obeys His Father, Father's will and goes on that mission to save. We know, as Colossians 2.9 makes so clear, that this is not a reference to Jesus having a God like we have a God. Or as Colossians 2.9 says, it, Jesus is fully God. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. But in His human nature, God is His God. And in His divine nature, God is His Father. As He, the Son, carries out the mission of the Father. It is this God alone who is God. And thus, this God alone who is to be praised. And it is this God, knowing this God, that allows us to, in fact, praise with enthusiasm and with joy. How can you really praise God when you say that all religions are equally valid? There are faiths that say there are many gods. And there is the faith that says there is but one God. You can't combine those two together and say that they're both equally valid. They contradict one another. If we understand that God is truly God, then we can say with Peter, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a reason for praising God that is, listed, that is given next here in verse 3. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth. That phrase, new birth... One word in the Greek is the key phrase here in these several verses. He has given us new birth. The Greek word can be translated regenerated. The idea is of a second birth, a new life. Notice that this new life is experienced. How? It is experienced through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So there's a connection between the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the regeneration that Peter has in mind here, the new birth that he has in mind. Peter does not elaborate because his readers knew what he meant. But let's consider for a moment what goes behind this idea. New life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It boils down to two simple concepts that go hand in glove. First of all, the death 
of Jesus Christ. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. We ask Peter himself in this very letter what he intended. 1 Peter 2.24 succinctly puts it this way. He himself, this is referring to Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. The apostolic message read earlier to us here uh, in Acts chapter 2, the apostolic message was that Jesus Christ died bearing sin. The second concept that goes with that, though, is not just anybody could say that they're dying for sin. Anyone can say that they're bearing sin. But the proof that Jesus accomplished what he claimed to accomplish was the resurrection. There is this message, the death of Jesus bearing sin and the resurrection of Jesus conquering death, the penalty of sin. The death of Jesus Christ was a physical death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a physical resurrection. I say that very purposefully. Because there are many today that are saying the resurrection of Christ is very real, it's very valid. But please understand, it wasn't a physical resurrection, just a spirit that comes back and kind of haunts us, so to speak. He really rose from the dead. He rose in physical form from the dead. By rising from the dead, God proved that Christ's death accomplished what he claimed it would accomplish, the forgiveness of sins. And in connection with that resurrection, then, we have new birth. There is a new birth for those who trust in this truth of Christ's death and resurrection and what it means. I'd like you to notice there very carefully that this word mercy. In His great mercy, He has given us this new birth. Here again, so many get off course. They think that, yes, Jesus Christ died. He bore my sins on the cross and he rose from the dead. Jesus did that for me and now I'll keep working with Jesus to accomplish my salvation by my good works, by what I have done. But it says very clearly here that this new birth comes through God's mercy. Mercy is the opposite of works, of human effort. Mercy is what we do not deserve. This is a gift from God. The mercy that God gives is a mercy giving the gift of new birth through faith in this message of Christ crucified and risen. This means that in its genuine form, Christianity is the start of a fundamentally new life. Have you been reborn have you been born again by placing your faith in the death and resurrection of Christ? Not merely knowing about it, not merely believing that it happened, but a rebirth that takes place where there is saving faith placed in this message of Christ crucified for you to bear your sins and to give you life. If you've not placed your faith in that message, you really have nothing to sing about. Because as Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 makes very clear, you are alienated from God. His holy anger rests upon our heads without a covering for sin. But 
the good news is that you can be rescued from that sin and you can be given new birth in Christ. There was a man that I knew a few years back <clears throat> who was striving to proclaim this very message on a university campus. And to do so, he needed to be recognized by the university as an official uh, group. And he was having a little bit of difficulty with that because of his belief that Jesus was who Jesus said he was. And he sat down before a university vice president who said to him, now let me get this straight. You want to come on our campus and you want to convert people. And the man looked at him and thankfully in genuine honesty said, yes, that's right. The vice president stopped for quite a while, hung his head, thought, and looked up at him and said, you know what, we've got a lot of students on this campus that need converting. You can have your group. Do you understand that illustration? Do you understand what it means to need to be converted? We need to be reborn. We need to be converted. We need to be given the life that Jesus Christ gives through his resurrection. The good news just keeps coming. For as we trust that message and receive this truth in faith, the forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of Christ, the good news just keeps coming. What are the results of this new birth? The results of this new birth follow in the text in verse 3. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Into a living hope. We enjoy a living hope. Hope is a fundamentally future-looking perspective. Everyone has some sense of hope, but for the person who has never been born again, hope is always limited to this life. I would picture it this way. Just even if we just picture this room as a big valley, and the walls of our auditorium here are mountains around the valley. We can just bear we can see up above the ridge that rims this valley. And on the other side of it, for those that do not know Christ, there is nothing but utter darkness at the top of that rim. There's a light in the valley, but that light is always in this valley. It's a light that is here for the now. But when we cross over the mountains into eternity beyond, there's nothing there but darkness. And so the hope in this life, the anticipation, is anticipation that maybe I'll get that new car soon. I really want to go to this place for vacation. I really hope that my kids become this or that or that I gain this inheritance or that this takes place or that I win the lottery. Some hope that's out there, some light that's out there to keep us going and keep us motivated, but it's a light that's all within our valley because, again, rimming this valley, the mountain peaks above, we see nothing in the sky but darkness beyond. But when a person comes to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a light in this valley. But it's not a light that comes from this valley. As we look to the mountain ridge beyond, there is a glorious splendor. There's a light that's beyond. And down here, we live in the shadows, anticipating walking to the top of that mountain, entering eternity into glorious light. The hope is beyond this world. The hope is somewhere else. It's not here in the things of this life that fall away and decay and pass on. 
as A.T. Robertson put it so beautifully, hope rose up with Christ from the dead. Hope rose up with Christ from the dead. The outer rim, as it were, now sparkles with a glorious splendor. And we can live every day in this valley with a hope that someday we'll cross over the mountains and we will enter into a never-ending light in eternity. We have hope. If you know Christ as your Savior, if you've been born again, we enjoy a living hope. Secondly, we find here in verse 4 that we anticipate a perfect inheritance. We are born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, verse 4, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. I think these two ideas are basically parallel, the two into phrases here, into a living hope and into an inheritance. That is, the living hope is this future inheritance. This inheritance is described here with three adjectives, all starting with the A, if we, the alpha in the uh, Greek, they're alliterated, we don't see that here in English, but they are, uh, this inheritance is described here. Think about it, this is our inheritance. It's first of all, imperishable. It will never grow old or get used up. Ever been driving? It's usually behind one of those uh, motor homes or some trailer hauling some uh, pleasure item behind it, but you've seen that bumper sticker that says, we're spending our children's inheritance. Have you seen that? Inherit- it's just the nature of inheritance. You know how people look at that. It's the young people go by and kind of scowl at them. And the old people go by and go, yeah, (laughs) it's yours, use it up, (laughs) right? Inheritances don't last. They don't last. This one does. It is imperishable. Inheritance funds are notorious for drying up, but this one is imperishable. And it does not spoil, that is, it's undefiled. There's absolutely nothing evil in it. Many inheritances are tainted by illegal or unethical acquisition. Not this inheritance. There's nothing immoral in it. And it will not fade. This inheritance partakes of undiminished beauty. Robert Johnstone said it, retaining forever the bloom and the fragrance of its joys. This inheritance never goes away. Or as another summarizes, it's untouched by death. It is unstained by evil. It is unimpaired by time. It is compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty. That is the inheritance that awaits you as a newborn believer in Jesus Christ. Not only is this so, but our eternal inheritance is, as you see at the end of verse 4, kept in heaven for you. The Greek reads, having ever been and ever continuing to be safeguarded. We could read it this way ever been, ever continuing to be safeguarded in the heavens for you. For you. You who are mere strangers in this world, verse 1 of chapter 1. And in respect to you, there is more good news for which to praise God. We enjoy a living hope. We anticipate a perfect inheritance. We possess a divine security, verse 5. For you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is your inheritance secure, you are. If you have been born again, you're going to be born again throughout all of eternity. 
You are guarded by God's power and you will continue to be guarded by His power until your salvation is entirely realized. If you are born again, you're as alive as you'll ever be. You're saved forever. But your physical body isn't yet, is it? It's decaying. It's falling apart. These sicknesses that we pass through remind us that one day death will win. The body decays, but if we have been born again in spirit, there's a day when because Jesus rose from the dead, our bodies too will be united with him and resurrected from the dead. There's that day coming, and there is nothing that can keep you from it if you've been born anew. Because not only is your inheritance safe, you are. You are saved, and you will be glorified. And none of this will slip away from our grasp because God's power will protect us until the end. How does this power work? Very interesting here what Peter says. How does this power work? This shield, we have the translation here, shielded. It might be better guarded because the guarding is not only external but internal. He guards us within his protective care. But he guards us against the world, the flesh, and the devil from without. But how does this power work? Verse 5. It is through faith that we are guarded by this power. Our faith is the gift of God through which God works, through which God works to protect us from the world, the flesh, and the devil. As we believe God, as we trust God, as we walk in dependence upon Him, His power encompasses and sustains us to the very end. Think about that. That give us reason to praise God. I'm so glad that my salvation does not depend on what I do. And I've passed, as you maybe have too this morning, the streams of cars coming from those places that teach that you get your salvation in little increments as you do good works. I'm so thankful that salvation is a matter of God's mercy. But I'm thankful also that once having been given salvation, our salvation is guarded by God. It's guarded. It's secured by Him. And it operates this security through our faith. As we believe God, as we trust God, as we walk in dependence upon Him, His power encompasses and sustains to the end through our active faith until, it says here, the last time. In the last time, that is, through this fallen age and until we meet Christ, when our salvation is fully realized, He will sustain us. All these riches rest on what? All of these riches rest on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without His resurrection, we have no hope. Without His resurrection, we are in this valley illumined by an artificial lamp that will burn out. Without resurrection hope, we walk in this dark valley with short-sighted hope. And we will walk out of this valley someday into utter darkness because there's no more there. But in faith, through the new birth, we walk in living hope. Our valley is not illumined from within artificially. It is illumined from without 
by a divine light that calls us to itself. And we walk in faith, not by sight, in faith in this glorious coming event of Christ seen in resurrected form, of our bodies transformed and resurrected with Him and our living throughout all eternity in an inheritance which will never spoil, which will never fade, which will never wear out. Are you living for this life alone? You're living for a sinking ship. But God calls you to see a different light, to be born again, and to live for eternity. As new believers then, as those who have been reborn, we have something to sing about. We can, as this says, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take opportunity to do that now. Let's stand together first for a word of prayer. Then I invite you to turn in your hymnals. If you'll grab your hymnal, we'll be looking at 210 and seeking to do just that, to praise the Lord with our songs. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to praise you because of what Jesus Christ has done. And we plead in prayer for anyone among us that does not know Christ as personal Savior and Lord, that we might be privileged to point such an individual to you as Savior would be our joy, and we pray that you'll open the eyes and draw by your light individuals to this truth. We thank you that through all nations of this earth, you are calling those that are your own, and we pray that you will continue to build up your church until the last time, until the day that you return and come. We do pray, Jesus, that you would come. And God, now in our hearts, in our soul, we pray that you will strengthen us and sustain us that your power would be operative through our faith that we would do what is right and trust your hand god we pray to this end and now ask that you would again allow us to praise you in the name of jesus we pray amen